Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, we are halfway through officially. It's a big deal. We're moving pretty quick. And we are also going to take a big chunk of Scripture tonight. We are going to study the whole chapter, 1 through 19 together. I'm confident I won't get to all your questions tonight. In fact, I probably will promise that. But there's a reason I want to take it all together. The big reason is that I don't want us to get lost in all the details. This is really easy to do in this chapter. The reason I want us to take it all at once is because the overall message is such a blessing, such an encouragement to the church, the way it all comes together. So I don't want us to miss it. So Revelation 11, verses 1 to 19. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was 
For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great and glorious God, we pray, Father, that we would give you the glory that is due your great name. We know this world will end with you ruling and reigning over all things and you being praised for all of eternity. So, Father, we pray that that praise would start now in our own hearts and from our lips as we gather together in your name to study your word and that it would continue throughout the week as we have the privilege of preaching your gospel to this lost and dying world. Father, give us an urgency to speak the truth in love. Give us urgency to share the gift that gives life to dead hearts. I pray that you would be pleased to awaken dead hearts to life through the preaching of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Do you ever wonder why we don't share the gospel more? Ever think about that? Ask yourself the question, why don't I share the gospel as often as I possibly can? Especially when we look around, we see people dying in sin all the time. People dying in sin and will awaken to eternal judgment and damnation. And we have the only hope that can give them life. And then add to that, we've been commanded, commissioned by the very Lord of the universe to go to the nations with this gospel message. And he's pretty much promised that he would go ahead of us, that he would awaken dead hearts to life, that our mission would be a success. All we do is preach, and God would be pleased to save so many people. And if you think about it, in many ways, God couldn't have made our job more clear or even easier. So why don't we share the gospel more? Why do we ever hesitate? Why do we avoid it or postpone it? I don't know about you, but I can come up with so many excuses why I don't do this. It's bad timing. I'm just busy. There will be a better chance down the road, right? It just won't work out this time. Or maybe, you know, I don't know enough. What if they ask a question I don't know? What if I can't put Scripture together the right way? It's just I'm not ready to share the gospel like I should. Or maybe for a lot of us, like sometimes for me, I think, well, it's going to ruin that relationship. If I preach the gospel like I know I should, it will divide my family. It will ruin my friendships with people. I'm sure we can come up with a hundred more excuses. But you know what? As I thought about them, they all come down to one thing, don't they? Fear. A lack of fear in God. The one who commanded us to go to the nations and preach this gospel. And a strong, paralyzing fear in man and maybe even in suffering. Now look, I'm not here this afternoon to just tell you, look, get over yourself. Get over your fear. You'll be fine. God will protect you physically. Nothing will happen. There are a lot of Christians that will tell you those things. Not Jesus. 
Remember what Jesus said? John 16, 33. In this world you will have tribulation. You will suffer. It will be hard, painful, frustrating at times. When you share the gospel, there will be points when you want to quit. But then Jesus said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what we need to remember. That's what will quench our fear. Not only that Christ has overcome the world, but that we, in Christ, will overcome the world. And Revelation 11 really is a reminder of that. In fact, if I wanted to summarize this whole chapter in just three words, I think it would be victory through tribulation. Victory through tribulation is really what John is showing us here in this revelation. And he'll do that in three images. You probably noticed as we read through. The first image is this temple imagery in verses 1 and 2. And then the second image is really the meat of the passage, verses 3 through 13. It's the two witnesses. And then last, the last image is the final trumpet, the seventh trumpet from verse 14 all the way to 19. So let's, let's strap in. We'll take this whole chapter together and go through each of these images as we see this great victory through tribulation. So verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Okay, so first we see John is called to go and measure this temple. Now I hope now that we're halfway through Revelation, you've learned a bit that these images don't come out of nowhere. They come straight out of the Old Testament, don't they? This is no different. In fact, this image is a huge portion of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 40 to 48, those eight chapters are all about this man going to measure this temple. In fact, it's going to measure the temple and the holy city of God. And what we learn from that is in Ezekiel 43, this temple will be filled with the glory of God like never before. This is the last temple, the ultimate temple of God, filled with his glory. And in the very last verse of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48, 35, the temple becomes a city during Ezekiel, and then the name of the city is this, the Lord is there. So you see, this is the backdrop to these images in Revelation. This temple, this city, filled with God's glory, filled with God's presence, and now John says, hey, take a measuring rod and go measure this temple again. Measure the altar, and did you know something new here? Measure what at the end of verse 1? Those who worship there. That's weird. How do you measure people, right? Well, that's actually a really big clue on what this temple is. Or maybe we should say who this temple is. Okay, it's not a physical temple. It's not the temple that was in Solomon's day. It's not the temple in Jesus' day, that great Herodian temple. It's not the future millennial temple to come. That's not what we're talking about here. The final glorious temple that Ezekiel was pointing to is the people of God. It's the church. That's what he's saying here. It's those united to the true temple, which is Jesus Christ, the one who tabernacled among us. I just think about it for a second. It's easy to figure out. The church is the place where God's glory rests, isn't it? the place where the Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost. The church is the place where we can truly say God is there. 
All those things that Ezekiel was talking about is fulfilled in the church. That's why Paul can even say in Ephesians 2, verse 21, the church is the holy temple in the Lord. And when we get there, Revelation 21 will show us this one more time. That new Jerusalem, guess what it's called? Temple, a city, and it's God's people. So this temple imagery is all about the church. That's what John is showing us here. But then why, why is John told to measure the church? Why is he told to get a reed, get a rod, and measure the church? What's that about? Well, measuring in Scripture is, and also elsewhere, has to do with a few things. It has to do with ownership. It also has to do with protection and security. Think of the book of Numbers for a second. What does God do at the beginning of the book? He numbers the people, right? He counts them up. He accounts for everyone. Why? Because he's going to protect them and guard them as they go to war, as they go off into the promised land. Or think Matthew 10, verse 30, that Jesus has even every single hair on your head numbered. Why in the world does God have that seemingly trivial detail in mind? Well, because he's saying, I protect you. I value you down to the every last part of you. And you don't have to worry because of that. That's what that passage is about. And you know, I was thinking about this. We kind of get this idea with property, like title deeds to house. It's probably maybe the only document that any of us own that have measurements on them, is what I'm guessing. And you probably don't even look at those measurements, right? They're done by a surveyor. They're marked. They're officiated. But what do those documents say? They say officially, look, this land belongs to me. I'm the owner. It's my possession. I take care of it up to this point and no further. You see, that's the imagery that John is pointing us to here. God is showing us here, look, this church belongs to me. This church is my possession. It's been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And she's mine to protect, to secure, to seal. I account for every last one of them in this temple, and I will protect her and guard her to the end. That's what this imagery is about. But then it's really weird because John is also told in verse 2 what not to measure. Did you notice that? Look at verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. That's commonly known as the court of the Gentiles, right? It's probably what we've heard of it. Leave that out, for it is given over. Oh, notice You see these divine passives keep coming again and again, don't they? God has given this outer court to who? To the nations. The idolaters. Who will do what? They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now what's going on here? We think, well, wait a minute. If God's giving over the court of the Gentiles, are the Gentiles not saved? Are they given over? I mean, I'm a Gentile. We're sending missionaries to go preach to the nations. What is going on here? This is a big problem. Well, it's part of this extended metaphor of temple and city. It's not that the Gentiles are not saved. It's actually that the Gentiles are included in the tabernacle, in the temple. They're already in this safe place, secured place. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 11. He says, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were separated from Christ, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So all those who trust in Christ by faith, 
Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Those are in this temple. So what's John saying here? What's with this outer court? Well, John is talking about the state of the church in this world. John is saying, look, on the one hand, the church is spiritually protected, spiritually secure and sealed. But on the other hand, the church exists in a fallen world. The church exists in a place that is at war with God, that wants to attack God and trample this outer court. It's a lot like Israel. They're in the wilderness. They're numbered. God is protecting them and caring for them. But where are they again? They're in the wilderness. They're in the place of testing, the place of trial, the place of suffering. We get this, don't we? I don't think I have to push this analogy too hard for us to understand how physically vulnerable we are. I mean, it seems like 10 times a day we get prayer requests for suffering and and struggles and various things going on in the church. We are physically vulnerable, but we are also spiritually secure. We will have tribulation. We'll be assaulted on every side. But we're safe in the hands of Jesus. And this is what I mean by we have victory. We will have victory in the end. But the path to that victory is tribulation. And that's what this imagery is trying to show us. Now, I don't know about you, but some of us, I think, when we hear that, we probably think, you know what? I know it's supposed to be encouraging. That's actually a little discouraging. I don't want to suffer. I'm guessing I'm not alone. I don't want to be a martyr. It's not something I would really desire to be in any way. And so, yeah, spiritual protection is nice, but can't I have physical protection too? Now, I think we need to stop and really think about that for a second because we can so often devalue spiritual protection just because we want to feel safe. Look, it's no small thing that I am still a believer, that you are still a believer It's no small thing that sovereign grace hasn't folded under and just completely disappeared. I mean, why is that? Is it because we're so holy, we're so smart, we got this church thing figured out like nobody else? No. Christ has protected us, secured us, guarded us. And the only reason any of us are still here, and the only reason any of us will make it to the end, is because God sustains us. It's because God sustains us through tribulation all the way to victory. And so let's get into the second image here. We've talked about the temple. Let's look at the witnesses. Don't worry, this will go a little faster. (laughs) Verse 3, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They're clothed in sackcloth because they have a message of repentance. That's that bitterness and sweet message that we talked about last week. But how long are they prophesying? How long is their witness? 1,260 days. You probably noticed that's the second number, right? Last verse, verse 2, said 42 months is how long the city will be trampled. Now it says 1,260 days. What's the deal with all the numbers? Well, if you didn't do the mental math real quick, you probably don't realize those numbers are the same amount of time. How many days in a month? 30. Guess what 30 times 42 is? 1,260. They're the same number. In fact, they're the same number as another number that keeps showing up in Revelation, which comes right out of Daniel, which is time, times, and half a time. Or a year, two years, and half a year. Three and a half years. Guess what 1,260 days is? 
and a half years. What is this? This is not Bible code or anything like that, by the way. It's not what we're doing here. This amount of time, these numbers are used as a metaphor in Scripture for a, a temporary period of suffering, of testing. When Israel was in the wilderness, they had 42 encampments. You can see that in Numbers 33 at the end of the book. Elijah, when he stopped the sky from raining, guess how long that was? Three and a half years. About how long was the ministry of our Lord? Three and a half years. You see, this picture keeps coming up. God is using this once again to say, look, yes, there will be tribulation, but it won't last forever. It'll give way to victory. And that's the case for these witnesses as well. Now, maybe the more pressing question for most of us is, who are these witnesses? Well, probably the better question to ask in light of what we've been learning in Revelation is not who they are, but where in the Bible do we see two witnesses? That's a better question to ask in this context. Now, you probably noticed two of the descriptions sound like Moses and Elijah. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, They have power, the witnesses, to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Who's that? It's Elijah, isn't it? And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Who does that sound like? Moses. So he's saying these witnesses have a similar kind of ministry, a prophetic ministry of salvation and judgment. They'll be preaching the gospel like that. But then in Zechariah, there's also two witnesses. And really the emphasis in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, is that the witnesses are being anointed by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim God's message. And guess what those two witnesses are called? Lampstands and olive trees. Hopefully that sounds familiar. Look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, if we put all this together, ministry like Moses and Elijah, proclaiming truth, verified by all these miraculous signs, they're like an olive tree, which is the symbol of oil from an olive providing the light for the world. Picture of the Spirit's anointing. And they're also lampstands. Wait a minute. We already know what lampstands are in Revelation, don't we? whole first two chapters, three chapters really, talk about the lampstands are the church. So once again, the two witnesses represent the church. It's the same object. The two witnesses are the church. The temple is the church. The city is the church. The same object from a different angle here. And so what does this have to say about the church? Verse 7. When they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now something profound happened in that verse. We might not notice it right away. I don't know if you noticed, there's been one word that shows up in Revelation over and over and over again. It's that word conquer. That word overcome. To the ones who overcome, remember that at the end of every letter? But this is the first time where the church is overcome. Every single time it's about the church overcoming something else. But this time the church is killed off. The tribulation ends in martyrdom. And not just that, verse 8. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom. 
and Egypt. We know those, don't we? Pictures of sin and idolatry, just like the world where the Lord was crucified at the end of that verse. And verse 9, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, the whole world will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. This is a terrible scene. Mocking God, rejoicing in their sin, patting each other on the back that they've finally done it. They've wiped out God's church. The tribulation is over, and it seems to end in defeat. Or so it seems, right? Verse 11. But after three and a half days, there's that symbol again, three and a half, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. You see what this is? This is a picture of the church's victory. Their victory comes through tribulation. Yes, there will be suffering. Yes, there will be pain. But the end of it all is victory. And we should expect this. Because this is at the foundation of who we are. Because this is what happened to our Lord, isn't it? That Jesus Christ came to this world, lived in our place, perfectly obeyed the law. And then what did he do at the end of his life? He went to the cross, taking the wrath of God upon himself, seemed to be defeated in the world's eyes, dying on the cross as an enemy, as a criminal. But then God vindicated our Lord by raising him from the dead. And everyone else who trusts in him, yeah, they'll suffer. They will die, but they will also raise to eternal life. You see, we have victory through tribulation because of Jesus. He walked that path before us. He paved the way, and he's with us all the way home. Now look, I I don't think that this is merely talking about just our resurrection, okay? Just the future resurrection, or even this last moment where the church is destroyed and rises from the ashes. There might be some last fulfillment of this, but look, this is the state of the church in our world, isn't it? Don't you see this all around us? Time and time again in history, as the church is sought to be destroyed, think of communist China, think of what's going on in Ukraine right now. As the church's witness is silenced, what happens? The church grows. The church matures. It actually spreads and thrives in tribulation. That's no accident. That's God's hand at work. Oh, we can find such encouragement from this. I know we don't live in a place in the world where we face that kind of tribulation like other parts of history. Maybe that day is coming soon. But I'm sure all of us, at some point or another, if we haven't felt it yet, can feel that the church is fighting a losing battle with the world. That the church is kind of a lost cause. You pour your life into people, preaching the gospel day in and day out, raising your kids to know the Lord And some of them walk away. They can feel like all that was useless as the church is continuing to be attacked by our world and our government. And churches right and left are giving in to false gospels, falling apart because of sin. It can feel like you're all alone. All alone preaching the gospel and no one else. 
I don't know about you, but this imagery really hit home, and it thought occurred to me, our world sees it as the prophets lying dead in the street right now. It's not just future. They're rejoicing over the destruction of the church, even in our day. But we don't have to lose hope. We can trust that God is still on his throne and will vindicate his church. And we should pray that God would resurrect the suffering church all around us, even in our own day. So we've seen the temple imagery, the witness imagery. Let's look lastly, ooh, and very briefly, at the trumpet imagery in verse 14. I can't leave this out because I'm sure there's a question that's already come to mind for a lot of you. Why are there two? Why are there two witnesses? Wouldn't it make more sense to have one? If this represents the church, no confusion with Jew and Gentile, one person would make a lot of sense. What's going on? Why two witnesses here to represent the church? Well, because in the Old Testament, it took two witnesses to establish the truth. Two witnesses to establish an offense against God's law. Look at Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 17. And so these two witnesses, which represent the church, function, their witness functions like prosecuting attorneys, like the prophets. As we, this is, catch this for a second, as we proclaim God's truth, People are saved. Dead hearts are awakened, but also people are hardened. It's making a case against the world around us, a case which they'll be judged for. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, we're the aroma of life to some, but death to others. And we see that, how divided our message becomes. And so the idea here is you have two witnesses, because of their tribulation, they were put to death. And how does God respond to the tribulation of these two witnesses? They made their case, and God responds in judgment. The very last trumpet judgment. Look at verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. You see the third woe, the last trumpet, that's the evidence. That's the basis for the final judgment. The basis for God to bring vindication to the church and to destroy the evil of the world. And you see this kind of both things happening, vindication and destruction in verse 18. The nations rage, think Psalm 2, right? But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You see the picture here? The nations raged, but the prophets put their sin on display. And there were two witnesses that verified that God's law condemns them. And so God comes to destroy them in the end. And look at 19, we get this description of God doing it. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. This picture of looking into the very holy of holies, that's the imagery here. God's throne there, and God is rising up from his throne, and we see flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hell. All evidence that God is showing up. Think Sinai. Think the last seal judgment. The last trumpet judgment. You'll see it again in the bowl judgment. When God shows up, what do we see? 
earthquakes, lightning, thunder. Because what's God doing? He's vindicating his church. He's keeping his covenant, protecting his people, and putting an end to evil in this world. Brothers and sisters, we have to get a hold of this. That our victory that we long for, that we pray for, the path to that victory is tribulation. We are at war, right? Flesh and bone, soul, we are at war and we will suffer. We will suffer as we preach God's word. We shouldn't act like that's a mistake, uh, an oversight in God's plan. We shouldn't act as if it's temporary, that we just have to get through this path of suffering. That is the path to victory. We're called to preach the gospel daily in the midst of that. But we're also promised, even though you face tribulation, take heart. As Christ says, I have overcome the world. And so will we. We will have victory through tribulation in the end. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful reminder. Help us, Lord, to be humbled to be strengthened, Lord, we have a tough road ahead, and sometimes I think we ignore that. I pray, Father, that you would equip us for that as you have promised, but also comfort us for suffering, for tribulation. Equip us to preach the gospel so that you might be glorified in and through all of us. So even if your church suffers, your church will grow and mature and become more like your son. Lord, we want to see that happen in our own day. So we do pray for this resurrection, for this beautiful picture of you vindicating your church. And pray, Father, we would see your glory in the end. In Jesus' name, amen.